Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back. This week on Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, we're going to be discussing the topic of nutrimetabolomics. This is a relatively new field, and our guest today takes a fairly novel approach to biomarker discovery, which is based on first understanding the chemical composition of foods and plants. So let me introduce you to our guest. Dr. Nicole Reisdorf is an associate professor in the Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Colorado Medical Campus. She's also the director of the Skag School of Pharmacy Mass Spectrometry Facility. Her main interest lies in applying mass spectrometry approaches to projects that may lead to new information and are of therapeutic relevance to human health and disease. This has included applications in nutrition-based research and discovering mechanisms and markers of asthma and COPD. In addition to discovering dietary biomarkers, Dr. Reisdorf is using germ-free and humanized mice to better understand the role of the microbiome in metabolizing specific foods and food compounds. And her research aims to understand how the host microbiome metabolism of food and plants, like green tea and cannabis, can affect health, health outcomes such as depression and anxiety. I'm so excited to have you on the show today, Nicole. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Cassie. Great. Well, why don't we start with this term of nutrimetabolomics? It's a mouthful, right? Yeah. <laughs> what, is, what does that actually mean? What is, what is this field about? Yeah, and it is a new field. Um, so I think I saw that term for the first time just three or four years ago, maybe. And it's literally the intersection of metabolomics, which is a mass spectrometry-based uh, science, with clinical nutrition studies. So um, we think of clinical nutrition studies as usually these randomized controlled trials or these you know, heavily controlled dietary and feeding studies where we give people some sort of a, a nutritional intervention and then we look at their health outcomes. So we're looking at changes in blood pressure or changes in inflammatory markers. Metabolomics um, can really enhance those types of studies by, um, as your guest last time mentioned, uh, we can look at many, many different molecules in the plasma, in the urine. And so rather than just looking at the typical health outcomes, the metabolomics gives us um, a much broader range of molecules to look at. So it's combining this mass spectrometry power in metabolomics to look at many, many molecules with clinical nutrition studies. That's amazing. So what you're able to do then is really look at not just the chemical makeup of the food that people are eating, but also how that food, how those food chemicals are transformed in the body, by the body, and also by the microbiome within the body. Yeah, is that right? exactly. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And you can even take that one step further and say, how does that influence our own biochemistry? So the perfect example of that is serotonin. So our, our gut bacteria are actually responsible for a very large percentage of the serotonin that's produced. Mm -hmm. And so what foods do we eat that could make, you know, change our gut microbiome and therefore help us produce more serotonin that could then help with things such as depression and sleep? Wow. That's, yeah. that's amazing how intricately interwoven it is. Wow. Yeah. So um, 
Well, why don't we start by also exploring this concept within animal studies? So you mentioned in your bio that you also do work with germ-free mice. How does one how does one make a mouse germ-free in the first place? <laughs> and yeah. yeah. And this is uh, fairly new to me too. Microbiome uh, research is, is not, um, you know, not where I started. I, I come in with the small molecule and, and mass spectrometry expertise and work with some really great collaborators on campus and um, across the United States. So <laughs> full disclosure there. Um, yeah, so the, the mice have to actually be, um, you have a, a pregnant mom and you have to have a C-section. So those mice cannot be delivered vaginally because then they will come into contact with the vaginal microbiome. And so the mice are delivered by C-section and then they're placed into these highly sterile um, chambers for, uh, for weaning and they're, they're put on food that has been um, UV irradiated. So any chance of any bacteria entering uh, these little mice is, is um, not impossible, but you know highly improbable. The uh, mice have to be, um, nursed by a mom who is also a germ-free mom. So they're taken by C-section and then placed in a, in a chamber with a germ-free mom who has to adopt them. So it, it's complicated, wow. yeah. Wow, that's, and, and what this enables then is basically, I guess the goal is to understand what the host or the, the mouse is doing to these ingredients versus what the microbiome in the mouse is doing. Do the metabolic profiles look very different between a germ-free mouse and a regularly colonized mouse? Yeah, not as different as I would have expected. So uh, we just finished uh, two different studies because uh, we wanted to validate the results. But certainly, say if there are um, 2,000 plasma metabolites or small, mo small molecules that we're looking at, say 10 to 20% appear to be um, because of the because of the microbiome. Mm -hmm. And this is just a mouse study. There's you know, no difference in the diet or anything like that. We haven't done anything except compare basically the same mouse with or without a microbiome. But the, the real advantage here um, and question is how would you metabolize green tea or cannabis? We're in Colorado. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Versus how would I metabolize green oh. tea and cannabis? And is it related to my microbiome? So when we, the, the germ-free versus um, humanized mice is interesting, but we're using them as a tool to understand an individual's metabolism. So the, the mice are actually humanized using your microbiome, my microbiome. Oh, and then, so we can get an idea of, of human variation in metabolism. Okay, so this is a bit of a dirty question, but <laughs> but when you say that they're humanized, are you basically taking fecal samples from humans and putting those into the mice? Yep, exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just like a fecal transplant. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. And and so when when we talk about metabolizing cannabis products, I'm assuming in this case you're referring to edible products, or yes. yeah, okay. Yep. And there is apparently, um, you know, publications on this are mostly observational studies. There's, there's not a lot of controlled studies that can be done in cannabis quite yet. Uh, we're getting there. Um, but most of them are observational studies showing that individuals do have different reactions to the edibles. And so you've maybe heard of stories where someone takes the recommended amount and they're not getting any effect. So they take three times the recommended amount and 
you know, maybe end up in the ER. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, maybe end up with just a mild response. Um, so we're hypothesizing that that has something to do with variation in the microbiome. Oh, fascinating. Cool. And so tell us a little bit about the power of metabolomics. So I, I spent a lot of time looking at very discrete molecules in our lab and also isolating compounds and looking at small pieces. But with the metabolomics approach, you're really trying to take a look at the, the big picture, right? And you mentioned thousands of metabolites. So how does that actually work? What, what kinds of data are you working with? In the, the case of human data, so for plasma uh, specifically, we're looking at a lot of endogenous molecules. And the power in metabolomics, like plasma-based metabolomics, is that we can get a snapshot. If you think of um, you know, the metabolic pathways, so if you go to Sigma and you've, you've got that huge poster that you could put on your wall and looking at all of those metabolic pathways, we can get a snapshot of pretty much you know, all of those different pathways, get three or four molecules in each one of those. So your targeted approach, and we do a lot of targeted assays in our laboratory mm -hmm. too, using the triple quads. So the metabolomics gives us an idea. Should we be looking at the amino acids? Should we be looking at the acylcarnitines, the bile acids, the phospholipids, oxylipins, which classes of molecules look like they're the most important in this particular question that we're trying to answer. And then we usually go to a targeted approach to really answer that more fully. So the great. power is really the, the breadth and the depth that you can get. It's great. And so let's say, for example, that you're looking at a population that has a metabolic disease like, like diabetes. Would you then look for certain targeted or certain signals that you would expect to see in a diabetic patient or, and are you quantifying those signals and are you measuring how different foods impact those signals? Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, in some cases, um, there's hypothesis driven. So we know kind of what to expect that diabetes is, is largely an issue with energy, right? Mm -hmm. Energy metabolism. How, how can we control the glucose metabolism and, and not let the glucose kind of go, go crazy? Uh, whereas something like COPD, we had no idea. Um, what pathways, this was, you know, 15 years ago, we started our COPD research, no idea what the mechanisms were behind it. Um, so it's hard to have a hypothesis. So it's more hypothesis generating. Um, so in that case, nothing specific that we know we should look at. We're just kind of taking a, a look-see, really. Uh, whereas sometimes you can have hypothesis generating. We're expecting the bile acids to change. Um, you know, are they changing? Yeah something okay. like that. Where the food comes in is that the other power of the metabolomics is we're not um, constrained to just looking at the human metabolome. We can look at the food metabolome and the exposome as it's been coined. So we look at the mm -hmm. pesticides, everything else that you're being exposed to. So that's the other powerful item. And we okay. can look at the foods, we can look at the plasma, we can use the same exact technology to look at Many, many, we've had some weird samples, uh, mummy samples, <laughs> every bodily fluid you could possibly think of we have had in the laboratory and, and analyzed it. Forensics <laughs> is a whole nother field. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, yeah, I think on our, one of our last guests, Naja talked about looking at eagle blood to diagnose, you know, to this kind of forensic, um, 
uh, detection of different metabolites. It's so yeah. it's so fascinating how these tools can now be deployed. And I, I'm wondering, can you elaborate a bit more on how how your approach to identifying dietary biomarkers differs from from more traditional approaches that we've used in the past? Yeah, so I think most people are familiar with the term association or correlation. So um, we might say that um, long-haired women such as yourself, um, you know, correlation with uh, more hairbrushes, <laughs> whereas short-haired women Correlation such as with, with no hairdresser thanks to COVID. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right. That's a good one. Yeah, That's yeah. A good one. So there's associations. It's not necessarily, you know, a, a direct cause and effect, but there might be associations where we could look more deeply. Many of the um, nutritional studies to date depend on association. And so a large group of people necessary to determine if including salmon in your diet or including green tea or a particular food um, has, you know, any particular change or does Western diet result in poorer um, cardiovascular vascular outcomes, that sort of thing. And they're association studies. And so then you have to go back and, and do a kind of cause and effect and then try and figure out which compounds in the salmon, in the green tea, might actually be responsible for that health outcome. So um, what our um, laboratory, and this is in collaboration with um, Dr. Nancy Krebs and Dr. Wayne Campbell, um, our collaboration is, is built around first understanding the chemical composition of the foods. And that means doing mass spec, doing metabolomics on the food. So this is, again, in conjunction with clinical nutrition studies where people are given very specific diets. So we take individuals who have, um, we know exactly what they've been eating for the past six weeks. We do metabolomics on the foods that they have been eating for the past six weeks. So we know what is in the food. And then we can look in their plasma and in their urine to see how many of those food compounds or if any of those food compounds are actually in the plasma and urine. Um, it's not 100% novel, but you know we're doing it maybe on a different scale. Um, the good news is you can find a lot of these parent unmetabolized food compounds in the plasma and the urine. And then our next step is to associate those compounds with health outcomes. So now instead of just understanding that the DASH diet or Mediterranean diet resulted in blood pressure changes, we can say specifically that this cryptoxanthin that is found in peppers, for example, has a highest, a really good positive association with this decrease in blood pressure. Oh, fascinating. If that made sense. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and so with these trials, their diets are controlled in terms of like the foods are being prescribed to the patients. You're not going based off of dietary logs. It's actually, they're being a fed a specific diet yes. and that's how you track it. Great. Yeah. How do you how do you deal with? Uh, I know that in a, a number of of you know vegetables and fruits that that people eat, a lot of these um, secondary metabolites found in plants occur in glycosidic form. And so I'm wondering, and we know that when when compounds get into the gut, they are modified both by exposure to the acids in your stomach, and then as they move through the intestine, and and you have um, exposure to all these enzymes that the bacteria produce. Um, how do you track that transformation of compounds as well? Yeah, <laughs> it's not quite a holy grail, uh, yeah. but it, yeah, there's many different um, strategies that you could take. The strategy that we're taking is in silica 
transformation, so biotransformation. There's a wonderful tool that came out of uh, Dr. Dave Wishart's lab in, in Canada um, called Biotransformer. And so we can predict how these parent molecules, and again, we know what these parent molecules are from the foods themselves. So we can um, predict what their phase one and phase two, and in some cases, their microbial metabolism will look like. And those tools are um, improving. So if I take um, this cryptoxanthin, for uh, beta cryptoxanthin, um, and put it through this tool, I could find potentially five metabolites that could result. And then I can look in the plasma for those five metabolites. Nice. The other way is actually doing it experimentally. And those are very expensive um, systems that you can actually put in the uh, bacteria and also the P450 enzymes, the microsomes, to generate these phase one, phase two, and microbial metabolites. Wow. And so for the listeners too, P450s are, are these are drug metabolizing enzymes and microsomes are from the liver. They're actually breaking down these compounds. It gets very complex very quickly. Um, I know. <laughs> Which is one reason we like focusing on the parent compounds and the fact that we, yeah. we could find them and, and find these associations was like, phew. <laughs> That's great. So how do you see, Nicole, how do you see this kind of approach of nutrient metabolomics as it advances? Where do you see it having the greatest impact um, in, in the future in science or medicine? Um, two major areas. In, in the area of, of science, um, improving clinical studies. So um, if I if I can know specifically that these compounds in blueberry are what are responsible for these health outcomes, certainly I could make supplements, but uh, you know, our hypothesis is that it's more of a, a whole food, a whole diet approach. Mm -hmm. But if we know that it's blueberry specifically in these compounds um, within that food, then we could add those in the clinical study and look at a very specific outcome due to that particular food. So it's really kind of, um, fine-tuning a clinical study, if you will. The other aspect is identifying dietary biomarkers. So right mm -hmm. now, as you mentioned, there's the, the dietary logs, there's the food frequency questionnaires, and National Institutes of Health just had a, a big request for applications to um, find centers that can determine these dietary biomarkers, because right now we're relying on an individual's recall and their honesty. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. To I say what they ate. I had a bag of Oreos. <laughs> I had carrots and celery all day, I swear. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't a cup of ice cream. It was half a cup of ice cream. So um, if we can find biomarkers that say not only whether or not somebody ate something, but about how much, that can also improve the clinical studies. And then from the nutrition standpoint, this is thinking way out there, right? But the Jetsons, when I grew up, the Jetsons were a big thing and I thought we'd never get there. And here we are <laughs> on this video call right now. Uh, my dog's not on the treadmill, but <laughs> he and I should be. Um, so if you think way out there, I, I don't know if eating green tea or blueberries benefits me specifically, but if you could take my microbiome and put it into a mouse, and see, you know, learn more about how I metabolize foods um, or how people with my microbiome makeup. So you could look at my microbiome makeup along with my genetics and be able to more tailor um, a diet to me. So personalized nutrition. I think 
eventually that's where this this type of research can go. That's really exciting. Yeah. And I, I think one other level of complexity comes in with the fact that our microbiomes aren't always static, that even the foods, so our microbiomes are impacting how our foods are metabolized and that influences our health, but also the foods that we eat are also feeding the members of that microbiome. And so <laughs> it's yep. kind of both ways where we can also influence the composition of our gut microbiome, um, you know, which could then again influence us. So it, it's this, it's this very interesting intricate network. And I'm really excited about the, like you said, the possibility of these tools that are emerging to track this. And um, I'm imagining that the management of so much data associated with this is a bit of a challenge. Um, are there data repositories? I know with, with plant natural products research and also marine work, we're, we're starting to use platforms like the, the GMPS or this global natural products um, kind of platform for for network analyses, but I'm wondering in the nutrition world, is there something equivalent or is there a kind of a platform where people share this kind of data? Uh, to my knowledge, no. So as you say, there are data repositories. Uh, the two major ones, one is run by the National Institutes of Health, the, the Metabolomics Workbench. The other one is is run by uh, Metabolites is, is the group that runs that. So there are data repositories in terms of being food specific. Lots of different, you know, you mentioned GNPS, there's the polyphenol explore lots of individual places where you could put data, but to my knowledge, nothing really comprehensive. Uh, you and I met through this periodic table of foods initiative, yes. PTFI, and I think they're going to be a tremendous resource for um, the untargeted metabolomics. So then I could say, you know, is this compound that I find in pepper, where else can I find it? And can I find it in any indigenous foods in, in Africa? So that individuals in Africa could get the same benefits that I'm getting from my homegrown sweet pepper or, or you know, something like that. Um, so they'll, they'll have a data repository and then they'll also have um, uh, specific quantities for, for certain things. So, you know, you could, you, you can start asking a lot more um, focused questions and um, more relevant questions once you understand the foods themselves better. So I think that'll be a good one. NIH yeah. also has a few ideas, but I don't think they're as evolved as PTFI. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about PTFI. And I know that they're starting, I think, with a thousand different foods. And it's it's this incredibly lofty thing. And I think it's going to revolutionize how we think about, you know, metabolomics and foods and, and nutrition. It's really yeah, cool. and like you say, it's it's it takes a village, and it will take a national or international group of scientists to um, to really take foodomics and nutrimetabolomics. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I look forward to the day too. I've I've been so fortunate with this show to be able to you know interview people working in many different spaces in food, including um, with uh, gene banks. So you know, the scientists are behind saving the, the, the genetic, you know, materials of so many crops across the globe. And it, it makes me wonder, you know, maybe as we, as we dig deeper into the, the nutrient metabolomic potential of foods that, you know, we could start looking at some of those seeds that perhaps aren't currently in cultivation, but are kind of on ice, you know, <laughs> and, you know, maybe bringing some of those out uh, as a way of selecting for more nutritionally beneficial 
um, crops for the future. Yeah, and how do I grow current crops to give mm -hmm. me more of these compounds that are now shown to have true health benefits? Yeah, no, yeah. that's that's really great. And so I, I guess some of the other things I'd like to cover are some of the mechanics behind doing work on, on human samples. So you've mentioned plasma a few times and other types of fluids. How does one take something like plasma, which is, as you know, you, you prepare off of a blood sample from someone, how does that get prepared to go into something like a mass spectrometer? Um, you can't just inject blood right into the machine, although that's how they do it on TV, right? So <laughs> how, do you, how do you actually get these samples ready? Is there a lot of sample prep? Um, yeah. Yeah, a lot of sample prep. And unfortunately, it's, it's mostly manual. Um, we, our approach is to separate the lipid molecules, the hydrophobic molecules, uh, from the more aqueous or hydrophilic molecules. And so we do an or organic extraction. So we first, and this is almost regardless of the sample. So that's something that we started doing in our lab um, well over a decade ago. Um, and that was trying to treat all samples pretty close to the same so that we could compare data across uh, different data sets and really um, impose a high level of quality control for everything that we do. Um, so it, it's about the same, whether we're dealing with a mushroom and salmon, which are two big ones in the lab right now, or uh, plasma. And that is uh, first precipitate out the proteins. So that's just organic, just a, a methanol crash. And then we do a, we call it a liquid-liquid extraction, not we, but every analytical chemist in yeah. the world. Liquid-liquid uh, extraction using um, MTBE, methyl terp, bethyl, um, butyl ether, MTBE. And you, that separates essentially the lipids from the aqueous molecules. Um, there's some more steps there, but um, now you have your small molecules in um, the aqueous fraction and the liquid fractions, and then we can dry them down and resuspend them in a small amount of, excuse me, of buffer and inject them into the mass bag. That's great. Yeah. And, and with these methods, you're not only detecting the presence of molecules, but are you also able to quantify certain molecules? Do you do that based on standards or how does that work? Yeah. So on this end of the spectrum is the relative quantitation. And for the relative quantitation, we can only compare uh, full changes between samples. So did this sample go up? Uh, did this compound go up when I'm comparing these two samples? Um, and that that's usually within a study that can be really challenging to compare between different studies mm -hmm. and certainly um, challenging to compare between different labs. So rather than compare the quantity of the molecule between labs or between studies, we compare the full change. So if um, this particular molecule was four times higher in a cancer patient or four times higher after eating green tea, uh, then I'm comparing that full change between studies. I see. Whereas on the other end is what you referred to previously, the targeted, and that is um, picograms per mil or picograms per microgram of material. And that's something like in a clinical laboratory. So if I go to my doctor and they want to measure my vitamin D or my testosterone, then oftentimes now they're using mass spectrometry to do that. And that's because it will give back a value that's a very absolute quantitative value. I know how much is in there. And then in between, 
I can do a hybrid method. And that is using some of the techniques from either one of those. So I can get quantitative information on a certain number of molecules, but then relative quantitation on everything else. That's great. It's it's really cool all, all how all these uh, methods have advanced even since the days when I was in graduate school. It's I mean yeah. even the the hardware has advanced so much even. Well, um, as we wrap up, I'm just wondering if you could share what's next on the horizon. I know you mentioned you're working on cannabis edibles. Um, do you have any other uh, or maybe tell us a little bit more about that and where you're going with that work or any other big projects on the horizon? Yeah, those are really the big ones. There's a lot of um, projects that we do through the core facility that are just, you know, fascinating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's fun being a, a core director uh, because I get to bump up against so many different um, so many different projects. One that is food related is advanced glycation products. Um, these end products of um, you know, sugar groups, not like glycosylation, but um, due to heating. So what, what changes occur in the foods when you heat them, when you overheat them cooking at all? And we've done some early work just through our foodomics, just looking at cooked chicken versus raw, cooked salmon versus raw, cooked pepper, cooked mushroom versus raw. And there are certainly differences, um, but we're finding some of the important molecules stay stay put at least that that cooking doesn't change them but i think there will be quite a bit of trying to understand how you know how we cook or prepare our foods um changes their yeah. metabolic profile no that's 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 so key i hadn't i hadn't thought about that but i'm trying to think of something that most of the listeners would have experience with perhaps with just eating raw sugar versus, you know, um, sugar that's, that's been caramelized and how it changes the flavor profile. And that's actually because there's structural changes at the molecular level and you're able to use these tools to, to look at that in all kinds of different food contexts. That's really interesting. Yeah. And then ask the question, can we find these in people? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes me wonder going back to, you know, traditional means of preparing foods, um, or even, even in the modern kitchen, is it healthier to steam your Brussels sprouts or to roast them or yeah. to grill your carrots or to boil them? I mean, these are questions that we really don't have answers for yet. Yeah. Um, how do you get the most nutrition out of, um, or the most beneficial nutrition out of our raw ingredients? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And again, metabolomics gives us a, a beautiful tool to look at not just the food, mm -hmm. but then what's in the person. Yeah. And then how does that affect a health outcome? Yeah. That's great. I've gotten really interested in cabbages lately. I'm actually, I have this on my brain because I'm, I'm working with a collaborator, Dr. Renault Jones at Emory, who also, he also runs the, the notobiotic core here at Emory. And um, our grant proposal is looking at uh, cruciferous vegetables and the impact it has on gut cytoprotection and this NERF2 signaling pathway. It's really cool stuff. I'm, I'm doing more on the chemistry end for the project, but it's, it's just amazing. Even in some of our early, early, uh, early work with Drosophila with fly studies, we've seen differences between different types of, of 
members of the cruciferous like vegetable species of brassica laureaceae, but also in the way it's prepared. You know, I love to ferment things at home. So I also fermented some of these. And then we looked at what it does to the flies and what it did to the chemistry. I mean, so my, my love of food and cooking also sometimes falls over into the lab. <laughs> <laughs> we can't help it. Yeah. We're yeah. forever saying, well, you know, I'll be the guinea pig. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll try this before and after. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this is really great. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to share with us that you've got? You know, just going based on what your your previous um, guest had and just kind of the wave of the future, I would encourage anyone listening, don't be scared of mass spectrometry. Yeah. Um, when I was in graduate school, you know, I at, afterwards looking for a postdoc, I looked at three different labs because I really got into proteins. I started off in, in um, botany also in plant physiology. Oh, and, wow did my thesis work on Chlamydomonas, um, focusing on a blue light photoreceptor. And that got me really interested in proteins. And so then I, for my postdoc, I really wanted to pursue proteins. Mm -hmm. um, so just looked at different technologies and mass spec was just coming out. And my boss, when I told him my thesis advisor that I wanted to go into a mass spec lab, he thought I was crazy. <laughs> because at the time, you know, one mass spec would take up a whole room and uh -huh. you needed various degrees, but not a degree in molecular biology and biochemistry to do mass spec. Um, but it, it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey. And they're not that hard to learn. And there's, we do a lot of training too, hands-on training courses. And it's, it's delightful to introduce people to such a powerful technology and have them not be scared of it. So That's don't great. be scared, get in, dig in, <laughs> have fun with mass spec because it's a great technology. That's great. And as we've learned today, there's a lot to explore using mass spec. Lots yep. of questions to ask. Yeah. And if you want to be a data scientist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is the field for you. Well, great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Nicole, for coming on the show. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Great. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype during the remote COVID-19 period. You can find this and all other episodes on the show at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcast. Lastly, if you'd like to see a video of this recording, you can check that out at our YouTube channel at Teach Ethnobotany under the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.